As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to episode 82 of the Keith Law Show. I am your host, Keith Law. I will be joined today by one of my favorite cookbook authors, Nick Sharma. Thought it would be a great time to have him on. Probably would have been a little better before Thanksgiving, but I actually planned to try a bunch of his recipes at Thanksgiving. Recipes from his newest cookbook, The Flavor Equation. And there's still probably a lot of cooking ahead of most of us with the holidays coming up. A few administrative notes first. I am busy at work on the Top 100 Prospects Package. A few of you have asked when that is going to appear for subscribers to The Athletic. Look for it around late January. I believe we're just going to run it earlier this year because there won't be other baseball news. Obviously, if the CBA is resolved before that point, that is subject to change. But rest assured, I am already working on it, which is a very good sign for all of us, including me and members of my immediate family who have to live with me while I do that project. I would also like to remind everyone I do have a couple of books out if you are looking for some last-minute purchases before the actual holidays. Smart Baseball and The Inside Game are both out in paperback. They are available everywhere fine books are sold. The Inside Game is still available through bookshop.org. Smart Baseball is back-ordered there. It is available through other online bookshops, but please call an independent bookstore near you and see if they have any copies. For those of you who follow me for some of my board game content, I would like to point you to a couple of pieces, one that has already run over at Ars Technica. I contributed to their gift ga- gift guide for board gamers, which ranks uh, or sorry, lists a number of board games in many different categories from the easiest light party games and stocking stuffers up to crunchy, heavy games, actually games of the sort I don't particularly enjoy personally. Someone else wrote most of that section, but I updated about 20 entries in the list and that ran about a week ago. Meanwhile, my ranking of the top board games of 2021 will run probably early next week over at Paste Magazine. I have uh, just about finished it. I'm just putting the last finishing touches on it tonight after I record this podcast. And for those of you who follow me for music content, I am hoping to get up my year-end music posts the week after next, probably the week leading up to Christmas. However, if I have some extra time the week of the, what would that be, the 13th? I will uh, probably get, I will at least start them then. And if they're done, I will just post them. I don't think we're going to get a lot of new music 
between now and Christmas. But I will say the Lottery Winners, an Australian indie pop band I really like, uh, released their most recent album at the very start of December, which is a rarity. Uh, but it's going to end up on my best albums of the year list for sure. You should check it out if you like that kind of music. But anyway, I bring that up as a a uh, possible reason I might hold off on posting my year-end music stuff by another couple of days. Now it is my pleasure to be joined by Nick Sharma, who some of you may know from his highly acclaimed cookbooks, Season, and his newest one, The Flavor Equation. I'm a big fan of both of those. He also has a new, uh, brand new, uh, free newsletter that he's doing just called This is a Cook Letter, which you can sign up for at Nick Sharma, N-I-K-S-H-A-R-M-A dot bulletin dot com. Nick, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Keith. So your books are wonderful. Um, I could probably just spend 20 minutes heaping praise upon them. I have made many of your dishes for company, especially. They always seem to impress, especially because I feel like one of your specialties is coming up with flavor combinations that strike people as different, whether they're actually novel, but you seem to be putting something different out there than most other cookbooks. A lot of cookbooks, I'm sure like, I'm sure you have the same thing. I have shelves and shelves of cookbooks, but I can always pull one of yours off and find something different. So I know it's a broad open-ended question, but just tell us a little bit about kind of your philosophy and particularly as, as you approached writing the flavor equation, which we think was, feel like was more of a, like a science focused approach to building flavors in all kinds of dishes. Um, absolutely. I approach cooking, to be honest, um, the way I like it. Uh, you know, if a recipe doesn't excite me, I'm not going to write about it, mm-hmm. even if I've, you know, if I've come up with it. And so it always has to excite me. It's something that I should want to cook at home. Often, um, it's also something that I should want to eat. And it's also something that should be fairly easy to put together uh, without me having to, you know, go through multiple steps. And so that's pretty much my, I would say my um, generic philosophy towards approaching anything I cook. Uh, But the other thing with flavor is the something that's important to me is that the concept of, um, you know, countries and national boundaries, that's much more of a recent construct and people have been migrating and immigrating for centuries. So they bring things with them along the way. I'm an immigrant, so I've also traveled with things and I brought them with me and then, you know, adapted that to uh, my cooking uh, with the ingredients that are available now. So that's something that I try to do. So when I, you know, create a recipe, I'll pull something in, say, tahini, and I'll then throw something that's Indian, which is probably not something that you would see. Um because I don't mentally I try not to work with those barriers in my mind when I create a recipe. One thing I noticed in season your first cookbook which subtitle is big flavors beautiful food and it is i I see it pitched as i in fact i just googled it's an indian cookbook but it's not really it's a lot more than that and one thing i loved about it was that as somebody who u.s born my heritage is mostly italian i know indian food just as a consumer i don't know the culture i don't know the heritage and less comfortable trying to experiment with those ingredients. And I found season was a great way to introduce readers to a lot of these ingredients, particularly the ones that are now they're a lot more accessible than even 10 years ago. In it rather than just saying, this is an Indian cookbook, this is my family recipes or this is traditional recipes, here I'm gonna bring these flavors into dishes that you might sort of recognize, but get you comfortable with using more curry, using other you know, more cardamom, less mm-hmm. spices that we consider uncommon in the American, very European influenced cuisine, but then in most of the rest of the world are actually reasonably common. 
Yeah, I think one of the things with all these, um, you know, what ingredients are accessible and what's available and what people are comfortable with is all relative. You've, I mean, you've just said that, um, you know, depends where you live, what you grow with, grow up with. Because one of the things I've realized when I travel to London, for example, Indian food is as popular as Mexican food. So I could go and find ingredients for Indian cooking in very easily in a regular grocery store. Mm. Um, I won't be able to do that as easily here although it is changing pretty fast i will give you know i will give uh i, I will pick you know give a call out to that but i think one of the most important things is um at least with season i it was definitely i thought i was writing a general cookbook <laughs> but <laughs> i always get i think it's because of my last name i keep getting tossed into uh that box but um because the you know like deviled eggs there's a recipe for deviled eggs in the book and it uses to i keep bringing up tahini but deviled yeah, eggs tahini's and, great yeah i mean there's tah- tahini and yogurt and that which has got nothing to do with india but you know um so i i think in that sense um i always try to make people comfortable in the kitchen i do my best because what is the easiest way for me to teach someone how to use a new ingredient or a spice mm-hmm. um if they've never used it before and to me the backdrop for that is a recipe that they're already comfortable with um so you know deviled eggs for example there's a mm-hmm. um uh, there's a frittata recipe in the book that i call bombay frittata which is very loosely based on the omelets that are made on the streets in india but it draws from those flavors and then i'm using european cheeses in there and you know bringing all of that in so it's definitely all of those recipes are basically uh, vehicles for me to introduce people to something that they may be familiar with or may absolutely never heard of those things before. It really works. And I think I'm glad you brought up tahini, yogurt. You have a lot of dishes that use yogurt and creme fraiche, which again, just in what we call American cuisine, other than a few regional cuisines, it just mostly is derived from European cooking. And I mean, tahini is kind of unknown there, certainly traditionally. I'm sure it's much better now, obviously, as immigration mm-hmm. has increased, they're more multicultural. But we, you know, I don't, I doubt I knew what tahini was until I was at least in college and then probably older than that. Now it's rare that I don't have that in the fridge. And the nice thing is I can get it at just about any place. I think Trader Joe's has it. You get it at most grocery stores. And if you can't get those things, if you live at least in a decent sized city, I know you do. I actually only live in Wilmington, Delaware, but I'm lucky we have a really good, um, Pan-Asian grocery store that's not even 10 minutes from my house and I can go in and get just about anything I would need for uh, more East Asian cuisines. And as those are accessible, I've had the experience at least where I can walk the aisles there and say, that looks interesting. I wonder what to do with that. And then go home and see, well, somewhere here I must have a cookbook that would tell me what to do with that ingredient. Usually I don't buy it first. That's not the smartest idea. I try to get the recipe first before I actually make the investment. But I feel like as I wonder if as a cookbook writer, do you find that you're now you can kind of go in more direction? Can you be more expansive because you can trust to, hey, if you know what, if you can't get this to your local grocery store, guess what? You could probably order it online, which I think is true of just about anything I've seen in, in certainly in your two cookbooks. Yeah, I'm I'm quite comfortable pushing people to go online if they can't get something because the goal is not for me to um, send them on long trips to grocery stores. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'll, my in-laws live in rural Virginia in the southernmost part. And oh, yeah. um, so I know from their experience and especially if they ask me to cook something, um, I either travel with those ingredients or 
uh, we'll, I'll ship it directly to them. So, mm. you know, having been in that sense, I think it's very important also sometimes for cookbook authors and for people who write recipes, especially in large metropolitan cities uh, like me. I live in LA and uh, it's really important for us to get out of this mind frame that everybody has access to the same things like we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having had that experience because of my in-laws and talking to another thing, I do talk to my readers quite a bit to find out what's available and what's not. Um, it gives you a better sense and appreciation that there are people who are excited to make your cooking, but there are limits to what they can get. And I think being conscious about that and creating recipes where um, you can give them options when possible with substitutions, mm-hmm. if substitutions are avail- aren't available for something like curry leaves, then I will give them directions to say, hey, go buy this online. This is a store that I trust or a brand that I trust. Go there. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. So I want to talk a little bit about the flavor equation, which I think betrays your pre-cooking – well, you know, you've always been cooking. But before this was your career, you studied molecular genetics. You took uh, did research studying osteoporosis and hyponatremia, which is weird. That's the second time that's come up. That word has come up in the last week. There was a huh? some kind of Twitter joke going around about that. Dr. Glaucom Flecken was uh, posted a video. This. Yeah, so I'll have to send it to you afterwards. Anyway, that – is very evident in the new book. And I love the approach also for folks who haven't seen The Flavor Equation, which I highly recommend. I would say it's the best new cookbook I've gotten in the house this year. You've broken the recipes down into seven sections. And it's not the typical, here are the starters, here's the salads, here's the mains. You do it by flavor profile. Brightness, bitterness, saltiness, sweetness, savoriness, which I think more people are getting used to now with this, but more people understand what umami is. Fieriness, toughest chapter for me, but I'm willing to try. Just my palate's a little soft for that. And richness. And I love the idea that you've just dispensed with the typical way we organize recipes in a cookbook. Instead, each one of those chapters to me almost feels like its own its own mini book. So I would love to hear sort of what was the thought process and, and did you get pushback too? I can imagine your editors thought, this isn't, wait, this isn't how we do cookbooks. We have one template for cookbooks and that's all we ever use. Okay, so my editors are always actually um, against the typical norm. I love my oh. editor, Sarah. Sarah Bullings, Great. she's amazing at Chronicle Books. Um, they, they always tell me that, when she always tells me, whenever you write a cookbook, make sure you don't follow the norm of organizing everything, like because that's mm. the most creative way to um, obviously capture someone's attention, but simultaneously also, how do you sort recipes that fulfill the narrative that the book is trying to sell? And with the flavor equation, I was talking about uh, the different as not only the different aspects that make up flavor, but also the different tastes 
Um, and so I decided that because there was so much theoretical knowledge in each of those chapters that I had to, you know, shave down and also make it um, easy for everyone to understand. For my biggest thing with this fear with this book, and it was a challenge was, how do I communicate science to people that aren't really interested in food science, that just want to cook? And mm -hmm. because not everyone is interested in the same things I am. Right. So, um, so what I did was with each of those taste chapters, I decided to use the recipes in there as experiments or like a, as a practical approach to ex kind of explaining the theory and connecting back with the theory that was written just before it. So people would say, oh, um, you know, vinegar. Vinegar is in the chapter on brightness. It's a mm -hmm. souring agent. So what are the recipes here that use vinegar? And so then, you know, the, chap the recipe chapters give you different recipes to use vinegar but also different types of vinegar. So you get an appreciation of how things change. When lemon or citrus is there, pomegranate, molasses, you know, those come into those recipes. So you're getting a chance to see how sourness works from different ingredients in the kitchen uh, in different ways. And I try to do that with all the other different chapters as well, with sweetness, with bitterness, um, savoriness. So that was the goal, but it was definitely the biggest um, challenge of the book is that how do you create recipes that are fun and exciting but also try to teach someone something about what you've just been yakking all along in the previous <laughs> pages. Well, I like that you started to with brightness because I feel like one thing, you know, I get amateur questions. My readers just ask me about cooking, mostly just kind of talk about it all the time. I'm nobody's expert, but I, but I have done, I've read a lot because I've in, I have the interest in food science. I want to know more about well, why didn't this work and why didn't that work? And, and try, a lot of things haven't worked in the kitchen, but you keep trying and something fails. I go on the internet, try to figure out what happened. But one thing I've learned as a home cook just for whatever, 20 odd years is we don't use enough acid. The brightness, the fact that you started with brightness to be, I don't know if this was your thinking, I said, this makes perfect sense because one thing we don't think to do a lot in American cooking, at least, is add that brightness at the end, a squeeze of lemon, a little sherry vinegar. That's kind of my go-to uh, is have a little sherry vinegar in the house to add last. And that can transform a lot of dishes. And you went right for it, said, no, we're going to embrace acidity because that is – and reframe it. Acidity is brightness. Acidity is not sour. It's bright and bright is good. And you start with brightness and bitterness of the first two chapters. There are two things I think we probably need more of in just in just home cooking in, in the United States. It will help us expand our palates. It'll help us go more plant-based, which a lot of people want to do. And I think it's it, it can get us away from – now everything's got to have salt and sugar, which trust me, I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. That's how a lot of us eat. But I think we're getting beyond that. And I love – I feel like your approach – gets us beyond it will help people get beyond that approach and try different things yeah i think uh you know one of the things i wanted to do was with a lot of recipe writing that i've grown up reading and learning from mm -hmm. a lot of cooking acids are usually added at the start to create a texture and oh. then because you have those sour notes already in there it seems like there is no need to really add it at the end the only place I noticed where the, this was different was with salads, with salad dressings, where there's really no cooking involved. So you would get you would get to appreciate, you know, the aroma of lemon juice or lime juice, you know, those kind of things, uh, or champagne vinegar. But with 
actual, but not when we say actual, but with cooking where heat is involved, it usually wasn't the case. And so I decided that let me see what's been done out there in different parts of the world. So in a lot of Asian cooking, for example, you use mm -hmm. acids also at the end as a garnishing touch or a finishing touch. And so I decided for the cookbook to classify cooking acids as cooking acids, as well as, uh, you know, the finishing touch of the garnishing. And, uh, you know, that's something that's also done, I feel, with a lot of other ingredients when I wrote this book. Salts, for example, you know, I used, I was going to call them fancy salts and basic salts. And then I said, <laughs> you know, calling something basic is probably a terrible idea. Right. So <laughs> I, <laughs> but there are so many salts that just beyond like table salt, which is the basic salt, um, you know, you can buy smoked salts, you can buy uh, lemon peel infused salt, I think even vanilla infused salt. So I've seen that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like I think Red Boat number one makes uh, umami salt that I really like to use when I barbecue mm. vegetables and meats uh, because it just builds on that flavor. And so it since a lot of these things are actually available in regular grocery stores, why not use them? And so that's a lot. If you look at all those chapters in the book, I do. I, I've tried to kind of say, hey, you know what? This is what you can use when you're cooking. And then this is what you can use as a finishing touch towards the end. It's funny you mentioned the smoked salt. Many years ago, a friend uh, got me a little selection of the, you know little jars of different um, flavored salts, an herb salt, a lemon one, a sriracha one, a ghost pepper one, which was actually not that spicy. It just seemed like it was all marketing. They obviously didn't put much in. But the one I loved was the smoked salt. And I would, nobody was looking, I would just like, stick my finger in, right? It was just like, you could so eat it tasty. straight. It had it so, so much taste. Yes. And it gives that, the same reason I use smoked Spanish paprika, that's probably my go-to, maybe even a bit of a crutch in the kitchen is you can get the smoke flavor without going outside. Hey, it was 30 degrees here yesterday mm -hmm. in Delaware. A little chilly to go out and grill. Not that I've never done that, but hey, can I get some smoky flavor into real smoky flavor? This isn't liquid smoke, an actual mm -hmm. smoked ingredient. Yeah, why not? And it's a thing, it's a, a tiny thing. It was Those are not expensive ingredients that I think are accessible to anyone. And again, I feel like your book, just many points in there. It's, these are little things, miso in here, tahini in here. You make a lot of use of yogurt and creme fraiche. The chutneys in the back of the... Um, uh, that you have in the essential section of flavor equation. I have some of the mint chutney in my fridge right now. I we I had that out at Thanksgiving and I loved it. And I was, thought I could put this on eight different dishes. I was putting it on the turkey. I skipped the gravy that I made. Oh, wow. And put the chutney on it instead. Wow, I, I should try that. <laughs> yeah, it was great because it was a different flavor profile. But again, like that to me, especially that was a nice tangy one too. And it was a big, that big brightness at the end too. Hey, I... I like turkey, but it's, you know, like most people, yeah, yeah. that's not the star of Thanksgiving, right? right? It's all the other things. We right. Absolutely. And are there any other ingredients that you feel like, I know mean, this is a bit broad also, but that you just, you love and would like to see people, your readers, wherever they are, try to use more, assuming they have access to it, obviously, which is always the case, but something we don't use enough. I think uh, you just mentioned one of them, and that's something that I've been working on a lot this year. I'm working on a new book, and uh, you know that ingredient is going to come up quite a bit is miso. Yeah, um, I feel you know there are three different types of miso: the white, yellow, red. For the most part, I just use white and yellow, mm -hmm. um, just because it's less salty, and I ha I'm in control of the salt when yeah. I'm uh, cooking. Uh, but that's such an amazing thing to uh, use. And I recently did a pasta recipe. I know you're Italian, so don't kill me when I say this, but okay. <laughs> I, roasted, I roasted tomatoes and I wanted to make 
a good pasta sauce with tomatoes without having to use anchovies because a I, sure. I ran out of them I didn't feel like going to the store and I knew I had miso in the house. And then again, a lot of people don't eat seafood. So yeah. how do I, you know, create that same texture? And so I roasted tomatoes, like, uh, I think like, you know, the regular cherry grape tomatoes, roasted yeah. them in the oven and then I blended yep. them, um, added a couple of red pepper flakes, olive oil, garlic, and then miso. And what yeah. miso does is that it just builds on that savoriness from the tomatoes because tomatoes also have that, but then it also thickens the sauce because it's from beans. So you've got that, it thickens the sauce and makes it much more creamier. And I was shocked at, I was nervous about posting that in the newsletter, but then I was shocked as to how popular it became with people and people are still cooking it. It's crazy, but miso is one of them. And then tamarind is probably the, you know, another cooking acid that I'd recommend mm -hmm. uh, just because it's so fruity and so different uh, with what our concepts of acids are. We usually use citric acid from lemon or lime juice and then uh, vinegar. Yep. But there are so many other cooking acids or rather sources of cooking acids that are used in different parts of the world. And tamarind is so amazing because it's not only fruity, but it really works well in uh, barbecue sauces and in, um, you know, just stews. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. And then in terms of sweet sweeteners, I really like maple syrup mm -hmm. more than I do honey. Um, I do I too. Just, maple syrup has just got that lovely vanilla aroma to it. So I like it. Um, but those are, I would say on top of my head, three ingredients that I really encourage people to use. And then obviously herbs, just use as many different herbs as possible, because if you can't find all these things, herbs will actually, um, just boom things up beautifully. The, uh, it's the, I act, one of the dishes I made for Thanksgiving was your roasted, there were halved sweet potatoes with a maple creme fraiche. What was it? Scallions, little pepper flake and peanuts. I think it was. Uh -huh. Um, and look, it was all good, but it was the maple, it's maple for folks who haven't seen the cookbook. It was creme fraiche with some maple syrup and fish sauce in, in it. So it had, it was salty. It was sweet. It was very high in umami. I could have had that on anything. Um, and I think I ate more of those sweet potatoes than anyone else. Everyone liked them, but I was I like, there was, there was a little extra. I'm like, I'm going to hide this <laughs> in the back of the fridge so no one sees it. <laughs> yeah. But it was, uh, it was, uh, a huge hit. Um, and again, I'm with you. Maple syrup, I think is honey's fine. I keep that agave nectar. I have, I mean, I probably have eight different natural sweeteners in the house of one sort. There's always molasses, mm -hmm. uh, but that mostly ends up in cookies, I think around here, but it's the, um, the maple syrup is the one I love to go to when I need something that's a little different. Um, yeah. even for a savory dish, uh, mm -hmm. I love to put it on salmon, um, you know, mixed with something else to cut it. So it's not pure sweet, but right. I think that's an underrated sweetener. Um, the one other thing I wanted to ask you about too, and I hinted at this earlier, is you. Uh, uh, one thing you and I have in common is that we sort of these are second careers for us. I was not always a sports mm -hmm. writer; I didn't go to school to be a sports writer, and I sort of fell into it a little bit accidentally and started doing it. And was sort of, hey, I might be good at this, and it's a lot more fun than anything else I tried to do in my life. And you kind of had the same career path too, going from the sciences and you were cooking and writing on the side talking about and that really took off so for folks who haven't followed your work tell us a little bit about your journey into what has blossomed into a great career for you um so i i started out in the medical field i um was specializing in biochemistry in india and then i came to america to study molecular genetics um 
so far, far, far away from what I'm far, far away from that now. Mm-hmm. But um, in, so I was at the University of Cincinnati studying molecular genetics, where I was specializing in cancer and herpes uh, viruses. Um, decided I was about to get my PhD, but I was really unhappy with the way the government at that time was, uh, the Gulf War was happening and they were moving research funding into military funding. And so I was watching all my professors and, you know, postdocs lose their labs or jobs because there was just no money. And for someone who's come to this country for a better career, it was nerve wracking just to watch labs close because Mm -hmm. is there really a future for me when there are so many postdocs trying to get into uh, prof- you know, become professors and stuff like that. So I said, okay, this is just terrifying. So I decided to quit and I moved to DC. I wanted to live in a bigger city because uh, I grew up in a big city and I was living in Cincinnati at that point, which was very different. So yeah. I moved to uh, Washington, DC, where I got a job as a researcher at the Department of Medicine mm-hmm. um, at Georgetown. And there I got the independence to do a lot of fun things because my boss was amazing. He let me uh, carry out my own research studies. So I was working on hyponatremia and osteoporosis over there. I also got to do, um, you know, studies on um, like how people responded to drugs and stuff like that. So we were looking at that. So for me, that was quite satisfying. Um, at the same time, one of the things that happens is living in Washington, D.C., you feel like you're going to end up in politics for some reason, <laughs> because that's every, oh, the only thing that people talk about. And I decided, OK, you know what? I'm going to work. Um, during the day and then during the evening, I'll see if I can uh, go to school. So I decided to go to public policy school. I went to Georgetown, um, got my master's in uh, public policy from there, specialized in health. But, but that was also a fun experience because there you were, you were literally taught as to how human behavior works in the real world. It was applied math, applied science in a way. Um, and I was seeing how people behave. And a lot of the focus on health, at least in my program at the time, was about food. Um, so I was learning a lot. And then because I was in academia all the time, I decided I needed a break. And that's when my blog started out. And then I started the blog of Roundtable, which then led to different things. It was the beast that I kept feeding and it wanted more. <laughs> um, and then that led to a lot of different opportunities. And when you've now lived in California for what, six, seven years now? Is it actually more than that? Uh, seven. You're actually right. Seven years. Okay. I thought I was close. And so what led you to choose to, I mean, I understand the weather out there would be enough to drive me. Like I said, it was really cold here yesterday. I'm wondering cold why I live in a cold place. Yeah. Um, so what led you to, uh, I know where you met your husband, if that was yeah, yeah. on the East Coast before you moved, but what led you to settle out in California? It seems like you're out there for the long haul now. Um, yeah. So we moved to California because my husband was sick of uh, Washington, D.C. He was, so my husband's a vet. Understandable. He was in the military and then, um, you know, in defense and everything. So we were from two different worlds. He just wanted to get out. He was done. <laughs> and uh, he got a job out on the West Coast. So we moved. Um, I um, started working at a pharmaceutical research company. And um, it was then because he had switched, sort of switched careers. I said, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm supporting you through this now. You need to support me because I want to see if I really want to do food full time. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I want to be a writer or do I want to work in a kitchen. And I hadn't worked in a kitchen ever. Everything that I had learned so far was through books or TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, so the best thing to do was to go and just immerse yourself and see if you drown or you swim. So I reached out to, 
think like 12 or 15 uh, patisserie shops and we were living in East Bay at the time. Mm-hmm. We had moved to San, the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, only one person called me back because I used my blog as my on my resume as my credentials because I had nothing else. And they said, you're overqualified for, to be a cook in the kitchen. I said, really? No, but blog? Really? <laughs> so I said, I can't believe this is working against me. Right. Um, it's so bizarre. And so this lady called me up and she said, why don't you come and start here? But I won't be able to pay you as much as you get paid at your pharmaceutical company. So I said, no, that's fine. I just want to test the waters and see if this is something I'd like to do. Mm-hmm. And I went and staged and what I did was because I was still at my safety backup or my safety net with the pharmaceutical company I told them I lied to be honest I told them that hey for the next two weeks I have a family emergency I can't come in the morning I'll come in the afternoon Mm -hmm. and they were fine with it so I would go early in the morning and this is the best thing about bakeries and patisserie shops you have to be in at about 4 a.m every day so I bike over start my day during the stage and I had so much fun Mm-hmm. Everyone was so nice. Everyone was really supportive. And the lady that I mentored under, she was very patient because mm-hmm. I didn't have the speed and those skills at that time. And she was so kind and like taught me so much. And then after the stage for two weeks, the owner of the shop said, do you really want to stay on? And I said, yeah, she said, okay. So I worked for about a year, a little over a year over there. And then we moved to Oakland. And I had to quit the job. But when I came to Oakland, I got it. I, you know, I looked for jobs and I got a job as a food photographer for a digital startup um, that was selling chef made meals to people on an app. Um, and so then that was the next transition for me going from cooking in a kitchen to, uh, uh, you know, working in a commercial setting. And then when I was ready to quit that job, because I wasn't ha- happy at the startup, it was just terrible. It was, mm. <laughs> you know, I've been there. <laughs> it, it was just like I wanted to kill myself. But um, I got my first book deal for season at the time. And so I had, you know, some financial support. And I said, um, you know, I can be independent on this, but I need a job. So I reached out to the editor at the San Francisco Chronicle at the time for the food section, who was Paolo Lucchesi, who said, mm-hmm. send me a portfolio. And I had come with the intent of, you know, do you have freelance jobs for food photographer? Mm-hmm. And he came back and said, actually, we looked at your portfolio and we were wondering if you'd be interested in writing a recipe column. And I said, really me? Because that's not, <laughs> I, I know my strengths are in photography. And he said, no, 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 we really think you have a voice. And then he gave me, I think one of, which I'm so grateful for, the thing that changed my life. Because then people took me seriously because I was writing for a major newspaper. Mm-hmm. And um he also gave me the freedom to write about the food that made uh, my work unique. And he encouraged that. So he let me do what I wanted to do, which I think is so important for anyone in a creative field is to be given both the freedom and the tools to do what you want. My guest today has been Nick Sharma. He is the author of two cookbooks, and I guess a third is coming. Uh, the first one is Season. The second one, which is the more recent one, uh, is The Flavor Equation. And you can also find Nick on Twitter at a brown table, and should also subscribe to his uh, email newsletter, which you can find at nicksharma.bulletin.com. Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Keith. That's all for the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. I should also mention I do keep a free email newsletter. Uh, you can just go to tinyletter.com slash Keith Law. And I send it irregularly. I send it when I have something to say. And so I certainly won't fill up anybody's inbox for that. Also, you don't have to pay for it. So you can't feel like you got cheated if I'm not sending it often enough. But I will try to send it a little more often during the off season, especially since there isn't as much actual baseball to write about. 
Thank you so much for listening. This may be the last show of 2021. It may not. Depends on scheduling. But if it is, turns out to be the last show. Have a great holiday, everyone. Please stay safe. Don't drink and drive. And if you haven't already, go get that booster shot. Thank you.